I must begin with the subject of the morning, the imminent return of Jesus Christ. We have looked at the scripture text in Matthew chapter 24. The key verse is the last one. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming. If we just were to stop right there, it would help a lot of people. He is coming. He is coming. It's a fact. The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. I want to pick up on that last statement, especially in my message today, when you do not expect him. I picked up the new copy of Decision Magazine from the Billy Graham organization that arrived this week, opened it to find a message on the return of Christ. The opening story was a story that I'd heard somewhere, but I don't think I'd ever seen in print. It was about a man who lived on Long Island who purchased a fine barometer. It was one he purchased on order. In other words, it would come in the mail. When it arrived, he opened it and was disappointed to find the needle stuck on hurricane. So he shook it, and then he shook it again. He vigorously shook that barometer, trying to get that needle from this far right place on hurricane. Well, it didn't move. So he sat down angrily and wrote a letter to the store from which it came. The next morning, on his way to his office in New York City, he dropped that letter in the mailbox. When work was over, he came back to Long Island, where he lived, to find not only the barometer missing, but his house as well. The barometer's needle was right. It was working but he would not accept it. And all of his shaking did not change it. It was telling the truth. I hold in my hand a barometer, and its needle is pointing to hurricane. Now it's up to you to believe it, and it's up to me to believe it, and it's up to us to be ready. But I'm afraid that if we could know the truth, the truth as represented in every one of our lives, there would be many who would be like Jesus spoke here in this passage, not prepared, not ready, not expecting the Lord to come. Therefore, you... You, 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 you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Why should Jesus have to say, at an hour when you do not expect me? There's only one answer. 
Because we get so caught up in time, we forget about eternity. It's true of all of us. It's true of this preacher. We get so caught up in time, how often do we really think about eternity and about this doctrine that is so prominent in Scripture, the return of Jesus Christ? The unexpectedness comes not in the lack of knowledge, not in not having heard that he's going to return. The unexpectedness is in the way we live, that we don't live like he's coming back, that we have forever, when in fact we don't know if we have even today. That's the unexpectedness. We have our plans all laid out. Our worksheets are all prepared. In an hour when you think not, or when you least expect him, he said he's going to return. Now, insurance companies thrive on the unexpected. The salesman will say to you, you never know when you're going to have an accident. And it's true. You don't know. If you did, you would take out insurance the day before. But instead, we write out these huge checks for insurance because we don't know. It could be any time. And all over the land, accidents are happening and insurance companies are paying. But you may drive a lifetime without an accident even though you have the insurance because of the unexpected. Insurance companies would go broke overnight if it wasn't for the unexpected. The same insurance man will say, now you never know when your home is going to burn or when it's going to be broken into and plundered, your grandfather clock taken. You never know when that might happen. So what do we do? We write out the check for homeowner's insurance and we carry it as long as we live and the majority of our homes never burn. The majority of our homes are never broken into. I can't even remember when I collected on my homeowner's policy. Thank God. I, that's fine with me. I'm not complaining. But I'm saying we carry the insurance because of the unexpected. You never know. Now, somebody's probably breaking into my house right now, but uh, <laughs> at least I'm covered. We have all had a grim reminder of the unexpected this week. I was in executive presbyters' meetings in Springfield, sitting with the brethren, when a secretary entered the room, whispered something to our superintendent, he stopped the meeting, turned the television on in the corner, and there we witnessed, as you witnessed, this tragedy unfold of these seven Americans being ushered into eternity in a split second. It was awesome. We sat there in silence, and then in prayer, the headline in the Springfield paper said, Space shuttle explodes with teacher, six others. 
And then was this line. It was the first failure in 56 such United States man-in-space missions, which says, unexpected. Those seven Americans did not crawl into that Challenger spacecraft with the idea of dying in a minute and 12 seconds or so. Not at all. But it happened. And this helps us to understand what Jesus was saying about the biggest event that will come in the calendar of man, the return of Jesus Christ for his own. Let me walk you through three steps in my message today. History past, history present, and history future. First of all, history past. The scripture refers in Matthew 24 to Genesis 7, where there was a flood. In history past, a people had been warned to listen, to prepare. It was not a warning that lasted one week, one month, a year, but 120 years. Noah was preaching righteousness and building an ark for the saving of his house. But nobody listened. It was only Noah and his family that went into the ark. All others were unprepared. And what does Jesus say? They were eating. They were drinking. They were marrying and giving in marriage when the flood came. It wasn't that they were not warned. It was that they hadn't listened. And it came upon them unexpected. They really did not anticipate it or their lives would have been different. I heard this week of a man killed driving his car when a crankshaft was thrown through his window. An angry man picked up a crankshaft, and here's this fellow just innocently driving his car down the road when suddenly a crankshaft comes flying through his windshield into his face, and he's in eternity in a moment of time. When I was pastoring in Ohio years ago, an Ohio Wesleyan University student in Delaware was shot to death sitting at the wheel of his car, waiting for his friend to pick up a jug of apple cider. He had just taken his fiancée home, Sitting there in his car, a bullet rang out, and he was dead in a minute. Unexpected. Noah heard, Noah believed. Noah heard, Noah believed, and Noah acted and was ready and was saved because he knew, he believed, he acted. So Jesus Christ reaches into history past to remind us that we need to be ready. We need to believe and act. History past, 
Genesis 19, Sodom's destruction, business as usual in the city. The angels hastened Lot and his wife and daughters out of the city. I read that story again with interest, especially chapter 19, verse 14, where it says that Lot seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. I pondered that statement in Scripture. The angels spoke to Lot about the impending doom of Sodom. Lot ran to his sons-in-law's homes where his daughters lived with his grandchildren. And he warned them to flee with him. But the scripture says his sons-in-law seemed as though he mocked. I said, now why? He was sincere. He was serious. It was urgent. And it came to me. His life. He hadn't been living as though judgment was coming. He was climbing the society ladder in Sodom. He was getting up pretty close to the top by now. The name of Lot was a revered name. He was even in the business section a few times. So when he went to warn his family, his sons-in-law felt like he was mocking them and wouldn't believe him. And there is no record that his sons-in-law made any effort to get out of the city. His wife, Mrs. Lot, had been warned not to look back, as were the others, but she had so many fine things in Sodom, it must have broken her heart to think of leaving all of these things. So she turned around to get another glimpse of where her treasure was, and she turned instantly into a pillar of salt. The Bible says the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. Judgment fell. But there was a man in the city who had been caught up in the things of life and had a hard time getting his family to even believe his words when the angels of the Lord warned him to get out. History past speaks to us. We have all read articles, books, seen film of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, cities thrown into confusion the prophet Zechariah said in his book, the next to the last one in the Old Testament, chapter 14, verse number 12, their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet and their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. People read that history past couldn't believe how that kind of thing could occur. We have no problem believing it now. If you have read accounts as I have, it sounded like Scripture. As that lone bomber flew 
Thousands of feet overhead, the city was unconcerned. A bomb was dropped, fell thousands of feet, hit the earth. A cloud like a mushroom sprang up and people standing all over the city in the open were just watching this unbelievable sight in front of them when their flesh consumed away, when their eyes began to melt and run down their cheeks exactly as Zechariah had prophesied, their tongue consuming away in their mouth. You see, the Bible is an accurate forecast. The barometer needle is accurate. You don't have to shake it. It's right on time. It will tell us of events if we will hear if we will believe, and if we will act. History passed. Babylon's overthrow in Daniel 5. God weighed Belshazzar, king of Babylon, and found him wanting. Every man passes over God's scales on his way to eternity, friend, and God's decision is final. Remember that. Babylon never felt more secure. We are hearing all kinds of overtures about peace from the Soviet Union. Over and over again, the Spirit of God says to my heart, when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction. I am here today, friend, to say to you, don't use the B or the Union as your barometer. Don't use Time Magazine as your barometer. Don't use the Evening News as your barometer. Turn to the book. That is the barometer, and it points to hurricane. When we were in the series on Daniel, you may remember, I mentioned the dining room of the palace where the feast was held. 1,650 feet wide, one mile long, 4,500 pillars in the form of huge elephants were a part of that dining room. Carved out of stone, they stood 20 feet high, and from their backs rose gladiators cast in bronze, towering another 125 feet in the air. From one hand of the gladiator swung a chain which crossed the entire width of the dining room, and upon these chains were suspended the roof gardens with their fragrant flowers, which filled the air with a rich and exotic perfume, the greatest night in the history of great Babylon. Trained peacocks with silver and gold-trimmed harness drew the miniature chariots which carried the wines and choice meats of the kingdom to Belshazzar's guests that night. Coming from the king's gardens is the music of the orchestra. Wow! Pastor Sapp just grueled when I mentioned this in the first service. 32,000 musicians, 10,000 trumpets alone, in the orchestra. You can imagine what that would mean to me. 10,000 great trumpeters in one orchestra. 
5,000 membires, 5,000 sackbuts, which is something like a trombone. Talk about a hundred and, is it, how many? 176 trombones? Nothing compared with Belshazzar's orchestra. 5,000 of them. 5,000 flutes. So they had 5,000 flautists. 5,000 dulcimers, which is an instrument of strings played by striking with two hammers. 32,000 musicians playing in the garden. You can't tell me that Belshazzar expected anything unusual to happen that night except to have a blast with his guests. He stands to blaspheme the God of heaven. And the scripture says they drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver and of brass, of iron, of wood and of stone. When a finger began to write on the wall, thou art weighed in the balance and art found wanting. Hear me. God was uninvited to that feast, but he came anyway. And I have a feeling that I'm talking to someone today who has had something going with God whereby you sort of say, God, we're not going to be intimidated by you. We're going to live our life and we're going to work on all of these things that we have to do down here and it's all going to turn out okay. Just kind of leave us alone and let us do our thing. Hey, God wasn't invited to that feast, but he came. And I want to say to you, you may not invite him to your feast, but he's going to come anyway. And he's going to come at a time when you least expect him to come. God had an account to settle with Babylon. And he settled it that night, an unexpected night in the history of that great kingdom. So history past speaks to us. But we also have history present. I could stand here the rest of the day and talk to you about scenes and events from the scripture that tell us we are on the verge of his return. But let me just pick out about four very quickly. One is death on the highways. You see the prophet Nahum, chapter 2, verse 4, prophet that you probably haven't spent your devotions with lately. Just mentioning the book, you think, let me see, where is that now? You're trying to figure it out. It's not one of our most widely read books in the Bible, but in that prophetic book, God showed Nahum a 20th century event. Here's what he said. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. Now, can you imagine being Nahum and getting that vision from God and trying to explain it to people hundreds of years before the birth of Christ? Chariots running in the streets like torches, broad roads, highways, multi-laned freeways. 
thousands of torches running like lightning. All he could relate it to is chariots. So he said, the chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another. And it's happening. We have the modern technology, but we don't have the morals to control it. So I turned on the news when I got home Friday night and saw a father weeping in a courtroom because his son, sitting on the other side of that little fence there in the courtroom, maimed for life by a drunk driver, pleading with the court. A boy who had all the aspirations of any boy like any other boy, yet his life totally maimed and affected forever because we don't have the morals to control what the prophet saw centuries ago. Half of the fatal accidents in America involve alcohol. Alcohol abuse costs our country $43 billion a year because we can't control. And how is it portrayed in our society? as socially acceptable and socially demanded. We ought to have better sense than that. It ought to be marked poison with bright red paint. But no, we paint the picture rosy and make people who do not partake feel left out. You see, God knew and he pointed toward this generation with a prophet by the name of Nahum and says, in that day, these things will be happening. There will be death and carnage because we don't have the morals to control it. There is hunger. Revelation 6 gives us the black horse riding across earth. You've heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. One of them is a black horse, and it speaks of hunger, and it moves everywhere. Over half the world goes to bed hungry today. Hard for us to believe, because none of us will go to bed hungry unless we choose to do so ourselves. In the paper, from Calcutta, India, a boy six years old stands by his father clutching his stomach because of hunger pain, bloated by malnutrition and lack of food. He asks his father if they can't find something to eat, and the father takes the boy by the heels and beats his head on the sidewalk. Before anyone can stop him, he beats the life out of his boy. The judge who sentenced the man turned to the court according to the account and said, this is not an unusual thing in Calcutta anymore. And we sit in our smugness. We can go lay $20 on the table somewhere in a restaurant after church is over and we can eat ourselves to the full, but it's not that way everywhere, folk. And we need to pay attention to the black horse that rides the horse of hunger. And what do we have in America? Farmers who are going broke. 
agriculturists who don't know what turn to take next. We have all the land we need. It's fertile. We have all the space. We have all the know-how, but we're so cotton-picking greedy, we can't use it the way God intended it to be used. So what happens? Unexpectedly, the black horse begins to ride. And it's riding while we sit here in this beautiful sanctuary this morning. Then there is James 5, verse 3, which speaks of heaping treasures together in the last days. It's a sign, heaping treasures. Where is our heart? Jesus said, what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world but lose his own soul? What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? What a searching question. A question that America needs to heed, to hear. We are working on our retirement programs. We're working on getting three-car garages now instead of two. We're working on heaping up treasures. We get angry when the minister asks for an investment in God's work. Don't bother me. Don't get too close to me, preacher. I've got plans. I've got things to buy. I've got to get a bigger boat, a bigger trailer, a bigger mobile, a bigger this, a bigger that. I want to go further, and I want to do it better, and I want to be more comfortable than I've ever been before. Don't bug me, preacher. I'm heaping up treasures. I deserve it. That's the attitude of the average American. Everybody wants to win the lottery so they can relax. And everybody that wins doesn't know how to handle it. That's the tragedy of it. But that's the attitude, and it's an end-time attitude, keeping treasures together in the last days. I ask you, what will it matter? If Jesus should come today, what would it matter? If your attitude is, Lord, please put it off. I'm getting pretty good nest egg here, and I, I'd really like to enjoy it. What is that compared to streets of gold and no sickness and no death and no crying and Jesus himself in the midst of us to be worshipped for eternity? How foolish we are to give ourselves in the present to heap up treasures. There's another sign. It's knowledge. Daniel 12.4 reveals that knowledge shall be increased in the end time. Scientific knowledge is growing like weeds. An airplane to get you from New York to London in three hours. A telescope at Mount Palomar that can photograph an object a billion light years from the earth. One light year is approximately six trillion miles, which means that it is possible to actually photograph an object one billion times six trillion miles distant from the earth. I don't even understand. Knowledge, yes. 
but little truth that lasts and helps build a quality life. Signs presently. You know that knowledge is doubling every two and a half years. They say that knowledge doubled from the birth of Christ to this century. Now it's doubling every two and one half years. No wonder the prophet said, knowledge shall increase. But has it helped us prepare? No. No. Because the gospel is so simple, our knowledge outruns the gospel. Jesus is so simple. The lowly Nazarene that we outrun Jesus. We're smarter than God now. But I am standing here as a preacher to call you back to simplicity and to understanding our times because I believe it will be in this generation that Jesus returns. It's imminent. And present history speaks to us of that. Well, let me hurry to the third and last. History, future. Verse 43 in Matthew 24 speaks of a thief. Interesting that he should use such a metaphor. The admonition is watch. You don't know what hour he will come. Now, I don't know all the ways of a thief, but I know this. A thief doesn't go to the phone booth and dial your number and say, Hi, I'm your friendly thief. And in 30 minutes, check your watch, 30 minutes, I'm going to bust in your bedroom window and I'm going to haul off everything that's valuable in your house. So, be ready. Ha, 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 goodbye. <laughs> now, I know that that is not the way a thief works. So Jesus says, now, listen, I come as a thief. Well, how does the thief come? He comes in darkness most of the time, although they're getting bolder these days. But darkness is the cover for a thief. Jesus will come at a dark hour in history. Could it get darker when the spirit of Antichrist prevails in the earth? Pornography? homosexuality, perversion of all kinds, abortion, murder, adultery, unprecedented, idolatry in a nation of knowledge. Dark, dark, dark. We write our letters to our senators. We work on programs to improve society, but is it improving? I must say, it is not improving. It's getting darker and darker and darker every day we live. Jesus said, pay attention. Future, I'm coming as a thief. A thief comes when folk are sleeping. That's the best time. Catch them unawares. Well, listen, friends. I must say to you today that most of us are asleep. 
We're not really soul winners. We're not really out there trying to get people into the kingdom, believing time is short, are we? How many have told anybody about Jesus since we last met like this? And how I have to beg you to consider Sunday night church, prayer meeting, etc., etc., etc. I'm not going to beat you to death. But I must be faithful to my calling to warn you that when Jesus says he's coming as a thief, he's going to come when people are asleep. And there are churches filled with sleeping people today. They're not alert. They're not awake. They're not witnesses for Christ. They even struggle with giving the Lord what's rightfully his. Asleep. Look in Matthew 25, the next chapter where the virgins are asleep. And they're without oil. Jesus said the bridegroom came and they were asleep. And so it would be if he would come this morning, I would fear what would happen if he would come while I'm preaching. I don't know how many would remain sitting here in these comfortable pews because he's coming as a thief and a thief comes when people are asleep. Be awake, friend. You don't have to be asleep. Be awake. Get tuned in. Put Jesus Christ where he belongs. You don't have to worry. A thief comes for valuable treasure. Are you valuable in God's eyes? Are you part of his crown? A thief comes by surprise. After a thief has come, it's too late for burglar protection. Too late after he's come. The Antichrist system takes over. Tribulation period. Well, what should be our attitude about the future? The Bible tells us. 2 Timothy 4 9, and not to me only, but unto all them also that love his appearing. You're to love his appearing. It's a good test. Do you love the thought? Do you love this sermon? If you don't, if you're mad at me, ah. Unto all them that love his appearing, he's going to come. He's going to manifest himself. It's a good test. Second Peter 3, 11 and 12, looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. You should be looking for it. It should be in your mind. He's coming. What will I do today? How will I live today? What will be the quality of my life and of my family? Looking for and hastening unto the coming of the day of God. Are you looking for it? Praying for, Revelation 22, 20, the last prayer in the Bible. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. You pray that way? No, not me. Boy, I'm not going to pray that way. I want to do my thing. I want to do this. I want to get the full benefits. I've been putting into Social Security for 40 years. I want to get something out of it. I'm not going to pray, even so, come, Lord Jesus. I'd rather trust Jesus than Social Security. I think it's a little better investment. Verse 44 of Matthew, we, we, we read it. Watch for. You're looking around. You've you got a bit of information that other folk don't have. And you, 
kind of have that little glint in your eye and that little smile in the corner of your mouth, and they say, what's with that person? Well, you're, you're watching for something. Could be, oh, look at that cloud. Oh, my goodness. Looks like a man. Oh, no, it isn't. No. But you're watching for, I, I go out and look at the moon. I swear I see Jesus in the moon. All the time I see him up there, just looking down at me, smiling at me. Say, now it says in the clouds, not in the moon. So move over and we'll have it made. Watch for the coming of Christ. Lest coming suddenly he find you sleeping. And what I say unto you, I say unto all, watch. Well, I've got to close. There are three types of people in the church today concerning the rapture, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Some think he's going to come before the tribulation, some think in the middle, some at the end. Hey, who cares? No matter what view you like, Paul's words come down on us like a hammer in Hebrews 9.28. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time. Doesn't matter what you are, mid, pre, post, be a pan. It'll pan out. If you know Jesus, it'll be all right. If you look for his coming, that's what Paul said. Under them that look for him shall he appear the second time. That's what's important. Are you looking? Are you anticipating? And in Luke 21, 28, and when these things begin to come to pass, then look up and lift up your heads for your redemption draweth nigh. Glory to God. Jesus is coming. It's imminent. When David Wilkerson was with us in September of 1984, he and Gwen went back to the motel from a service here, turned on the TV, and saw a video musical of a famous rock singer. Demons were caressing the young singer. Skeletons rose from graves. Sadomasochists were beating victims. Hideous occult creatures danced with humans. Blood spurted, and there were overt displays of violence. David, in anger, shut the TV off, went into the bathroom, knelt before God, and began to weep. When God gave him Zechariah 2, verse 5, and he came back to preach it to us the next night, he saw Jerusalem with the Lord as a wall of fire all around her, and he preached that sermon titled The Wall of Fire. I'll never forget it. In the Bible, Jerusalem is a picture of the church. David Wilkerson said to us, let the communists and humanists preach and practice their atheistic doctrines. Let the nations prepare for war. Let society indulge like fallen Rome. Let the mad masses be consumed with the cares and riches and honors of this doomed world. None of this matters to those within the wall of fire. All that matters to those within the wall is the glory of God. And I bring you back to that premise, friends. All that matters to us in the wall is the glory of God. Things should not be predominant. 
We should not be overrun by the cares of this life and the insidious sins of this world. We are on our way to a city whose builder and maker is God. We're on our way up, folk, and it's time to shout, Jesus is coming and everything is going to be A1, okay, forever and forever and forever. We shall worship him around the throne. My question to you, are you in the wall of fire? Are you protected? Are you concerned about the glory of God? Are you ready for the return of Jesus? Only you can answer that. I didn't say, are you a member of this church? I said, are you ready for the coming of Jesus? It's imminent. If he should come this morning, would you be still sitting or would you be going up? Bow your heads with me as we pray. Lord God, sober us, sober us. This is no time to be giddy or silly. It is a time to evaluate, look inside. But we can't do that properly without your Holy Spirit, so turn the light on, Lord. May people get right with God today. May they move to the altar of prayer and embrace the doctrine that we have espoused today. May they find peace and joy and power to live until that day. God, we're so weak. Give us power. We're so flaky. Heal us of our flakiness. Put a rod in our backs, Lord, to stand straight and tall in the midst of a world that's lost its way. May when everyone else is falling apart, we are firm because we know that our calling and our election is sure. Draw people now by your Spirit.